Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host, and my co-host is with me again in the studio. And we're, of course, always joined by our faithful sound engineer, Daniel, in the room adjacent to ours in order to produce Squawk. And if you don't already know, that stands for Student Questions at Calvary College. So we're glad to have Brian back this week. His duties took him elsewhere for our normal recording session, but I missed his contribution, and I'm sure you folks did as well. Cults and Solutions, we haven't really pivoted from that, but it's more like Cults and Solutions 2.0, mm-hmm. where we're jumping into the old doctrines that were defeated very early on by the church. Now, the one that we already looked at was Gnosticism, but that's been a couple of weeks ago because we had Gnosticism, then spring break, and then we did our Easter special last week. And now we are going to come right back to where we left off, which is Montanism. And I know Brian's going to be able to do the the background, the history for what that is. And we'll talk a little bit more about how it relates, just so you guys don't tune out right at the very beginning. This has a direct connection with modern apostolic movements and the new apostolic reformation, which we've mentioned before, radical Pentecostalism, and several other types of doctrines that are associated. And, And you've pointed this out in the past, Luke, that a lot of these early theological errors, what we call heresies, do have modern counterparts. Uh, the Sibelians or modalists, you know, you could say are oneness Pentecostals today. Right. The Jehovah Witnesses are Arianism, which is another gr- a group we'll get to. And today, as you pointed out, the um, Montanism would be extreme Pentecostalism. And so these aren't just old and buried theological right. errors. They are still alive and present and cause a lot of people to trip up. Exactly right. So, Luke, as normal, before we jump into this, we always talk about what's going on at the college. How was your college class this week? Well, really, last week we didn't have class because we did Good Friday, and it fell on the night that we normally have class. But in lieu of that, this week is going to be our first week of boots on the ground where we're going to go out and make evangelical contact with the community. Mm. And so the students are looking forward to that. I gave them an action plan to do while they were out of class for that week so that they'd be ready to come back. We're all going to meet at a predetermined location, and we're going to go out, and we're going to share the gospel, Brian, and all the stuff they've been learning, Lord willing, is going to come to fruition. So cool, so cool. Well, in our class, we uh, started the 1900s and uh, introduced a whole bunch of what I call foes of the faith, and, you know, from everything from cults and you name it. And then, of course, we started um, our new book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost oh. of Discipleship. So so there's uh, there's some real excitement uh, about the new book because Bonhoeffer you know, sure. is, is so popular. But it's great. So, Luke, give us those little points to whet our appetite on right. Montanism. What, what is it that we're dealing with before I jump into a little bit of historical sketch? The amount of detail that I could find, as you pointed out earlier, was much smaller. So there weren't a whole lot of things that I could really point out except for doctrinal ones, which I'm just going to mention in passing. For those of you who are history buffs and want to know weird terminology, this was also called the Cataphrygian heresy (laughs) or the new prophecy. I know that'll be a great parlor trick if you can come up with that one in the middle of conversation. At the very least, it'll get you ostracized. Yeah. (laughs) And then we know that these folks, as mentioned, had problems with what is called their pneumatology, their doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There also were problems with their eschatological views. That's their view of final things. There was an issue with their concept of what we would call revivalism, which has extremely interesting connections to some of the things that are happening now. And their key principle, and this is number five, and we're going to, I'm just talking about these now, but we're going to recap each of these. These serve as my outline for the doctrinal stuff that comes later. Last tidbit is their key principle was that the Holy Spirit was manifesting himself to the world through Montanus and his prophetically gifted prophets and prophetesses. Mm-hmm. And it is probably this aspect that connects it most clearly to some of the modern movements. But that's just the tidbit of some of the doctrine stuff that we're getting into and what they held to back in the day. Take it away, Brian. I want to hear about these folks and where they came from. Well, well, Luke, as you pointed out, there isn't a lot of historical background. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the most intriguing things about 
Montanism is that we know less about the man and more about one of his famous disciples, right. Tertullian. And though Tertullian is instrumental, I mean, he's, he's what I call in my class a monster in a good sense. <laughs> he's very big. He looms large in the early right. church. It really is an odd thing that Tertullian joins ranks with the Montanists. But what we do know is that it is in today's parlance, today's verbiage, a ancient hyper-Pentecostal group. Mm. So people who say, well, Pentecostalism was something that was founded in the early 1800s. Well, not really. This goes back throughout church history. You get these waves of interest in the things of the spirit. And this is really the first one that we're aware of. It's a second century ancient theological movement that had theological errors. The founder was Montanus, and we don't know a lot about him. Tradition, again, nothing from Montanus's own hand, but tradition states he may have been a pagan priest. He may mm. have been an early convert to Christianity. And Jerome, who is writing about 100 years after the fact, says he was a priest of Sibel, which was a mm. definite pagan priest. So Jerome, who knew of Montanist, Again, didn't know him personally because Montanus lived previous to Jerome, but Jerome noted him in one of his writings. So the story goes, Montanus began his ministry, quote unquote, in a village located in what is modern day Turkey. And he surrounded himself initially by women, other women priestess, uh, Priscilla and Maximilla is to be specific. Here's the interesting thing about Montanus, is there weren't as many what we would call direct theological heirs. He wasn't, to our knowledge, denying the Trinity. He wasn't, to our knowledge, denying, you know, Christ's divinity or his his humanity, which tripped up a lot of the other um, uh, early theological heirs. But what his main, you know, and you're going to hit on these a little bit more, is his main thing was a distortion of mm-hmm. who the Holy Spirit was and that the Holy Spirit communicating to and through him and through these prophets. So in 157, that's mid-2nd century, he fell into a trance and began to prophesy under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And in these prophecies, he starts to proclaim that there's going to be a new heavenly Jerusalem, and lo and behold, it's going to descend where he's at there in, in Turkey in Asia Minor. Well, by the late 150s, he catches the attention of what we call Orthodox, today Bible-believing Christians, and they're, they're starting to go in, okay, what's going on here? And as we pointed out, there were a group of them who were going, this doesn't seem right, but there were others like Tertullian who obviously linked arms with them later on. So what we do know is in the 160s, the Montanist practice of these these aesthetic and ecstatic mm. um, visions took prominence. It became the dominant experience of this little group of Christians. So it was Holy Spirit-centered. Right. Probably not as much on Jesus the Son or God the Father, but it was all about the Spirit. And it rose to the attention of more church fathers, so by 190, so just really 20 years of its practice, it was condemned as a movement. And I know you're going to get into a lot of the reasons why it was condemned, and there's some disconcerting things is, is why. But what is fascinating, fascinating, is after it was condemned in 190, Tertullian joins ranks with them in 207. Right. And he, he, he starts following this Pentecostal early hyper-Pentecostal movement. And what we know mostly about it is from Tertullian's writings or sayings. But by the time Tertullian died, it had lost its momentum, and it probably stuck around into the 5th century in some pockets. But for the most part, when your leader and your key disciple die, it phases out. Interestingly enough, I've been asked multiple times in the many years I teach church history, why did Tertullian join this group? And the, the, the clear answer is we really don't know. Alistair McGrath, in his book, Heresies, gives 
some insight of maybe what he thinks. And, and he says, he says this, Tertullian's decision to convert to Montanism appears to have been motivated at least in part by its stringent moralism. So Alistair McGrath is guessing that, that Tertullian was less inclined to join because they were having these, you know, these, these visions as that they held a very high moral standard. And as you know, Luke, and our listeners may not realize this, Tertullian was already kind of becoming disenfranchised with the moral laxity of the church by exactly. 200. He was going, God, you guys are already getting caught up in worldly affairs. And so if Alistair McGrath is correct, maybe Tertullian joined him, not so much because he aligned himself with any kind of, you know, uh, Pentecostal leanings, but he was more attuned to its early aesthetic, very moral lifestyle. And, and, and we do know around this time also that a lot of the, um, you know, what, Kate, what we now know as the monastic movement also were trying to live to higher moral standards. But J.N.D. Kelly, the famous Scotsman historian, church historian, and, and, uh, scholar of looking at early doctrines. He, he says regarding um, Montanus is they believe themselves to be vehicles of new effusion of the paraclete. And, and here is J.N.D. Kelly's major point of contention with them, is that the Holy Spirit could be regarded as supplementing the ancient scriptures. So yes. one of the key things is what, according to J.N.D. Kelly, and I know you're going to unpack this more, is that maybe these guys were saying, hey, okay, that's what Scripture says, but the Holy Spirit's telling me this, and they're trying to give new revelation. So one last insight into Montanism, and this is by Harold Brown and his book on heresies which we've already pointed out that Montanus believed that he had special prophetic gift, which was shared by two female disciples, which I, I pointed out, Maximilia and Priscilla. But what his direct claim was, and you pointed out this out with pneumatology, is that supposedly the Holy Spirit was speaking directly through him. And this would be obviously in contrast to speaking through Scripture. So what this infers is that this group of Christians were not convinced that the revelation, a.k.a. Scripture, had ended with the Bible, that there was new revelation to be made and had. And I know you're going to piggyback on that because there's oh, yeah. groups today that are saying the exact same thing. But I, I brought up Tertullian. On the moral side, on the high-living ethical side, they, they you know, they— they didn't uh, view divorce highly. They, um, you know, had a lot of what we would call good qualities, you know, on, so you only marry once you don't, you don't divorce and you really need to stay true to the Christ-like life. Again, a high moral standard. So again, those aspects we would agree with. We would say, yeah, we need to pursue a Christ-like life. We need to have high moral standards. But again, it was the misappropriation of the person and work of the Holy Spirit that really got them into trouble. Mm. So, so that's just a short historical uh, sketch. And again, short primarily because there's not a lot of material about him. He had a strong 20-year ministry, if you will, and then it was condemned. <laughs> and other than Tertullian, who kept it alive for a while, it faded. It faded into history. So that is a, a short history snippet. What do you got now, Luke? Well, that was excellent, Brian. And there are several things that you said that are eminently piggybackable, if that's a yeah. word. <laughs> so a couple of the things that I really want to draw out have to do with Tertullian's association with this group. And I, I'm going to unpack that a little bit later. But when we get into it, the first thing I'm going to look at is the pneumatology. And I'm going to make a few assertions here as to why it is important for people to remember this movement and to learn the lessons about this movement as applied to modern theological constructs. There's nothing new under the sun. 
The Bible makes that pretty clear, and that refers to the minds of men. But there's a principle. Some of you may know what I'm speaking about, but I'm going to pack it. It's uniformity, and that is that things that have happened in the past have particular causes and cause particular things. And those causes that bring about these movements and the effects that these movements have are generally going to be the same dynamically. Brian mentioned it in his history. There's been multiple waves of this. So at some point in a culture, and it happens in many cultures, there are specific circumstances, tensions, failures of moral fiber, whatever you want to call it, that produce a vacuum where persons like Marcion and his buddies can come through or persons like Montanus and his troop or entourage can come through. And classically, this has helped the church, even though it's hurt the church, but it's helped them because of the impact it's had on them to realize, wow, we're really not teaching what we ought to be doing in this area, and people are falling through the cracks. Uh, or people themselves are saying, well, I really didn't know what I needed to know about this area of theology, and I got tricked, and now I've come out of it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why we've made such a big deal, if possible, to bring in people who have come out of these movements, Mm -hmm. because the story of how bad theology impacts your life is not just, oh, well, I believe the wrong thing. It's far more detrimental Mm -hmm. than that. And spiritually, it's devastating. So as we look at this stuff, keep these things in mind, because I'm going to be hitting on some things, not because I'm trying to be sensational or trying to stomp on people's toes, but because these things, believing the wrong doctrine— has real world and real spiritual effects. Mm-hmm. And I we want you to know about this. So number one, this stresses the importance of a biblical view of prophecy. And we're going to talk about a little bit about what that is. The importance of a balanced view of the Spirit and His work. And as Brian pointed out so clearly, this was really at the heart of what drove many of their other errors. The importance of agreement regarding eschatological truth. The importance of an understanding of the, quote, Christ life. Mm -hmm. And finally, the importance of recognizing dangerous doctrines and separating from those who teach them. Now, in all of this, of course, we're still trying to maintain our humble hermeneutic. Doesn't mean we know everything. We don't have to know everything to know some things. And we shouldn't put ourselves in the juxtaposition that says, well, nobody can know everything. We're not saying that, but there are certain things that we know are not true, mm-hmm. even if we don't always know everything that is true. Mm-hmm. We know enough to know what is right and what is wrong. So with that being said, the first thing that I wanted to point out about biblical prophecy comes directly from Scripture itself. First Corinthians fourteen thirty-one: For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. But listen to this next part. 1 Corinthians 14, 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Now, this is a very important distinction between what was happening in Montanism and what the Bible talks about as biblical prophecy. Two things, and you pointed this out, and I'm going to read an article that I mentioned before when we were covering the New Apostolic Reformation and some of the things that are said there to show you the connection here. But the idea, number one, that someone post-apostolic era, and that was after the last apostle died, Mm -hmm. would still be claiming to have a level of gifting that is equal, if not greater, than that of those who wrote inspired scripture, and that therefore their statements could be taken in the same vein and could contribute to scripture to the same level that these others did. That's a major problem, number one. But number two... The idea that prophecy has something more to give us than Scripture already. These two things are inextricably tied. So it means the canon's not closed, but more importantly, that that person themselves becomes the authority. Mm -hmm. And these two ideas combine to make a very dangerous mix for those who are spiritually immature. There's something also to be said here, and we've seen this as we've recognized a number of these groups. The majority of the folks who spawned these groups did not have sufficient theological training. Right. And let me let me chime yes. in here, Luke. Not only did they not have sufficient theological training, a lot of these groups during this time didn't have the totality of Scripture either. They didn't have all the books. Yes. They, they probably had the four Gospels, some letters of Paul, let's say, 
but they were absent of what we would know the modern canon of the New Testament. And that, that and again, led to problems, as, as you're pointing out. Exactly right. And so, I mean, the list is so long when it comes to people who've started these great big, quote, new movements of God. And I'm not saying that God can't use people who don't have education. That is not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand me. What I am saying is that people are far more likely to fall into error if they do not have the entirety of Scripture. It's almost inevitable that they would. And many of these people, because of their charisma or because of their persuasiveness, have been placed into positions of leadership or held up on a pedestal by people, and they have drastically affected the life of the church. Yeah, and Luke, so good, because what I tell people is there's always been an an internal three-legged stool of Mm. testing things. First and foremost is Scripture. Yes. Is what someone's saying scriptural? So you've got to be a Berean and you've got to weigh everything against what you know that person's saying to scripture. Secondly, what is two thousand years of history taught? You know, and a lot <laughs> exactly. of a lot of people don't realize that. They they go and all of a sudden they get a new word from the Lord, and it's contrary to something that's been taught clearly for two thousand years. But then thirdly, I say, so if if you're still tripped up after comparing it with scripture and you're still tripped up after comparing it to history, then you go to the third stool, leg of the stool, and say, okay, what is common sense? Is what this guy's saying common sense? Am I really supposed to barricade myself in some room in in the heart of Texas and and do all this weird stuff? And and so invariably, one of these three things, these quote-unquote prophets, these people are getting new visions, they're not aligning themselves with one of those three things. Exactly right. And sometimes, as you pointed out, multiple areas have issues here. And so what I want to point out in in concluding this particular point before I move to the next one on pneumatology, so we're still talking about the idea of prophecy. Now, I mentioned this gentleman, C. Peter Wagner, who was, for all intents and purposes, the progenitor of the term New Apostolic Reformation. And he said that this was not a denomination. He's trying to defend it as though it was not a cult, which we have basically tentatively associated it with cultic status. He says that according to the way that they think when it comes to extra biblical revelation, he says this, some object to the notion that God communicates directly with us, which is a little bit of a straw man. Supposing that everything that God wanted to reveal, he revealed in the Bible. Listen to his next statement here. This cannot be true. However, because there is nothing in the Bible that only says it has 66 books, argument from silence. Mm -hmm. It actually took God a couple hundred years to reveal to the church which writings should be included in the Bible and which should not. Also not a true statement. The fact that the church didn't always come to agreement didn't mean that the church didn't already have in its possession the things that they knew to be the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Then he says, after misquoting and misinterpreting this, he says, that is extra-biblical revelation. Mm -hmm. Even so, Catholics and Protestants still disagree on that number, speaking of the apocryphal disputes. Then he says this, beyond that, I believe that prayer is a two-way street. We speak to God and expect Him to speak with us. We can hear God's voice. He also reveals new things to prophets, Mm -hmm. as we have seen. The one major rule governing any new revelation from God is that it cannot contradict what has already been written in the Bible. It may supplement it, however. Yeah. This is exactly what Kelly is talking about when he says this. And this man who's the progenitor of this movement, the one who coined the term for it, is saying, this is clearly what we stand for. We're perfectly okay with new prophets hearing from God, and those things, while, quote, not contradicting, are supplementing, which is just a different way to say the same thing when it comes to this. And and Luke, and I know you're going to unpack this when you get to the pneumatology part of this, but inherent in this, and and, and you were right to pick those little points out because they're problematic on many levels, but inherently, big picture, this gentleman stands up, and he's speaking, quote-unquote, on behalf of the Spirit. And then what if happens if someone else stands up and they're speaking on behalf of the Spirit, but these two things mm-hmm. aren't in agreement or in alignment? So are we saying this Spirit's confused? Is, right. is, he, is he telling someone not truth or whatever? What we have to do as Christians, 
have the final base of authority and say, okay, what has God told? What has God showed? And what for 2,000 years have we stood upon? And that is scripture. Yes. And so the, the point is anyone could stand up and say, well, thus saith the Lord, I'm hearing from the Lord. And then they spout out something and then someone else spout out something. But we have no way of judging that. We have no way of having any kind of higher arbitration unless we have the scripture. And so he, the fact that he's saying we could supplement scripture is incredibly troublesome because someone else could say, oh, we're going to supplement it as well. Well, then who exactly. do we believe? Exactly right. And this, this is the tension that catches so many people in the modern era when they're unable to properly attribute or disposition things properly to God or to the origin of man's doctrine. So in this next section where we're going to be working with pneumatology, this is the doctrine or the study of the Holy Spirit. And we're not going to spend as much time on every point as we did on that point, because those are, those are very important things. But I'm going to continue to draw from the modern commentary and speak to modern ideas while talking about these things that were true of Montanus and his group. Now, directly correlated with this idea of prophecy, as you've mentioned, is the idea that Scripture comes with an inherent authority, and that authority is recognized by a lot of groups, and so they have to be very cautious in how they seek to supplement it. So in addition to making claims that are intangible, things that you can't see, taste, hear, touch, smell, things that are true according to them and only them, they must somehow or another establish their authority by more than just their claim. This is what we spoke about when we were speaking about the new apostolic reformation. This is why they are clearly associated with deliverance ministries, saying that Christians are demon possessed, saying that they are the arbiters of revival, that they are the vehicle. This is the claim that they themselves make, that they are the ones who are going to awaken the church by bringing and reinstalling prophets and apostles back into the leadership of the church, reorganizing the mission of the church into a ministry of deliverance. These are their claims that we spoke about extensively a few weeks ago. Now, I want you to, th to hear what I'm saying now. This seems like it's all new and, and, and fresh and all of these things, and we've been warning you about it. Listen to what is stated here regarding Montanus. It says, another aspect of Montanism was the expectation of the second coming of Christ, which was believed to be imminent. Now, we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That means the immediate return or the come-at-any-time return. And he even points out this belief was not confined to Montanists. Listen to this. But with them, it took a special form that gave their activities, again, listen closely, the character of popular revival. Now, again, I'm not trying to step on toes, but we're going to talk about this because this directly relates to pneumatology. According to scriptural teaching, the Holy Spirit only came once, and that was at Pentecost. Now, that does not mean his ministry ended at the apostolic age. We do not teach that. We are not a, quote, cessationist community in the sense that we think the ministry of the Spirit and the spiritual gifts ended at the time that the apostolic movement stopped or that the apostles died. We do believe the apostle and prophet as an office are no longer functioning. Howbeit the gift of prophecy in the foretelling, forthtelling, are now bifurcated, and there are specific restrictions on the foretelling that we've already started speaking about. The forthtelling, or the preaching of the gospel, also known as prophecy, is clearly active. And there's much to be said about the spiritual gifts. I don't want to digress too much because that's not the purpose of this particular podcast. However, in direct connection with the ideas of pneumatology, this idea that there should be a revival isn't necessarily wrong. The understanding of what a revival is, is where the problem often lies. Now, again, I may be stepping on some toes, but I'm going to talk a little bit about what Scripture says, because this is considered by modern-day theological constructs to be a unique work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he does something that he wouldn't normally do, and perhaps he does that because we've 
asked him to do it enough. And many verses are quoted where how much more shall he give to the Holy, the Holy Spirit to them that ask him, etc., etc. According to Scripture, when you were saved, you got all of the Holy Spirit that you ever needed. That does not mean that he does not manifest himself during periods of complete dedication. This is the filling of the Spirit, or some people call it the manifest presence of the Spirit. But one must be very careful how one describes that, because it isn't just a catch-all to try to explain all spiritually attributed activities that no one else can understand. There's not a confusion, as Brian pointed out earlier, there's not a confusion about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Scripture says this, But when the Comforter is come, him whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now, the Bible says in other places that the Spirit will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So he has a defined ministry, and it is highly unlikely that this ministry, as is so often attributed to him, of signs and wonders in the modern age, which were actually condemned by Jesus specifically when being requested as a sign for something that was already known to be true. But when it comes to those types of things that are being emphasized in replacement of sound doctrine, there's a problem. So the Spirit testifies particularly of Christ. He does not point out and glorify men. He does not put men on a pedestal. He does not allow himself to be used as a tool of men in their own specific agendas to, quote, accomplish the work of the kingdom. You say, well, what's that have to do with the second coming? Their belief in the second coming caused them to create exciting and popularized events in which, quote, the Holy Spirit was moving and people were being revived. Now, is that something that the Spirit does? Well, sure he does. But revival, folks, is not a special brown paper package that God puts in the mailbox and delivers to you when you've finally done enough praying and asking and etc. It is not a meritorious thing. It is not something that God is withholding from his people that for which we must beg him. That does not mean we cannot express our desire to have a revived life with him. But the revived life, folks, is simply the normal Christian life. You say, what's that? It's not you living your life and me living my life however we want to. It's about being fully sold out to the Spirit of God, being filled with the Word of Christ, as let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. This is a clear direction that it is through the word that one might know God, and it is in knowing God that one is transformed. It is upon meditating upon the truth of what Christ has done for us that allows us to love the Lord as we should, and therefore putting God first and loving him with all of our heart and yielding ourselves to the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. That's the idea of dwelling or residing in the Spirit. It is in this that Christ's life is manifest in us and through us. And Paul, I've mentioned this verse before, he says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it is by living through faith, and the Bible says this elsewhere, it says, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. So the life of Christ that people will often call a movement of God, intrinsically tied with, quote, revival, as something that is external to you, an external extra work of God that he does, is actually internal, and it's individual. But when sufficient numbers of individuals have discovered the freedom that they have in Christ by yielding to the Spirit, that has a corporate effect that cannot be manufactured and is wholly different from simply getting a group of people excited for a week or two and then dying out. It means that people have finally understood the, the actual essence of what it means to be a Christian, one who is like Christ. And it is an action of the will by surrendering one's will to the will of the Holy Spirit according to Scripture, as Scripture states. It is in this that he's able to direct your path. What's it say? In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Lean not unto thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him. That's very similar to the New Testament truth that says, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you. This is speaking of the vine. This is John chapter 15. This is Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is Ephesians. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. These truths are individually apprehended, not corporately. 
even though they have a corporate effect. So in all of our external pursuance of moves of God and acts of revival, we think that by our proximity to these things that suddenly we'll catch fire, when really that means that we've been seeking God for what he can do for us rather than what he needs to do in us. And it was this prominent error in Montanism that drew so many people who were unexcited by orthodoxy and its seemingly dead and dry preaching of the word and its teachings that were according to scripture alone. And they were caught up in the frenzy of a new movement with new truth that seemed to be doing exciting and visible things when really the spirit-filled life far supersedes anything that man can concoct. But those who were caught up in this false pneumatology that was tied directly to, oh, we're going to do all these things and the kingdom is coming now. I'll speak to this from, again, the same gentleman regarding the New Apostolic Reformation. He says this, This refers to the desire that some of my friends and I have to follow Jesus and do what he wants. This is not a correct representation. One of the things he does want, he taught us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This means that we do our best to see what we know is characteristic of heaven work its way into the warp and woof of our society here on earth. Think of heaven. No injustice, no poverty, righteousness, peace, prosperity, no disease, love, no corruption, no crime, no misery, no racism. And I could go on. Wouldn't you like your city to display those characteristics? But where does dominion or kingdom now come in? On the first page of the Bible, God told Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea. Adam and Eve and the whole human race were to take dominion over the rest of creation. But Satan entered the picture, succeeding in usurping Adam's dominion for himself and became what Jesus calls the ruler of the world. When Jesus came, he brought back the kingdom of God, and he expects his kingdom-minded people to take whatever action is needed to push back the long-standing kingdom of Satan and bring peace and prosperity of his kingdom here on earth. This is what we mean by dominionism. Now, the teaching that Montanists had was that through revival, they were going to create such fervor that they were going to push back the kingdom of darkness and that this was going to directly translate. It says they believed the heavenly Jerusalem was soon to descend on the earth in a plain between the two villages of Papuza and Timion in Phrygia. The prophets and many followers went there, and many Christian communities were almost abandoned. This promise of the kingdom now, present in Montanism, is present in just as virulent a form in the modern New Apostolic Reformation. It's an old error that has been revived once again. This ties into our next point, which is the importance of agreement regarding eschatological truth. So not only is this an issue with pneumatology and the fact that they believe the Spirit of God can be utilized to bring about authority to their statements and their claims that God's kingdom is coming now, they just need enough people to go and make it happen. This ties into what I spoke about with YWAM, by this group that speaks of this kingdom now type of theology, that the mantle of Billy Graham and Jesus Christ the evangelist, as put by Lou, is going to come on the nation now, and they're going to go out with signs and wonders and convert an entire generation of people. This sounds very familiar to what Montanus was speaking about. These folks are largely post-millennial. Some are amillennial in their theology. They don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, many of them. And for those who do believe in a literal thousand-year reign, they do not believe in the rapture of the church. Even they, they could be what they call historical premillennialists, or they could be postmillennialists. And a lot of people say these things are non-essential. These things are unimportant. Don't argue about them. They have drastic effects on how a person views their current Christian responsibility. They have drastic effects on how someone sees the fulfillment of God's promises. They have drastic effects on how someone countenances the conversion of unbelievers. These three things alone are so essential and central to, to doctrine, orthodox doctrine, that this cannot be neglected as part of the condemnation of this type of teaching. 
Again, this is present in this first movement that we know of here, Montanism, but it is manifest in multiple movements, many of which, because of these very things, are associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. Now, when I spoke about the importance of understanding the Christ life earlier, I was speaking particularly to, quote, revivalism. And I've already spoken about that in tying together the idea of pneumatology and revivalism, because they are sort of two sides of the same coin. The work of the Holy Spirit, again, is very specifically spoken of. And we should be very cautious of those who believe themselves to be arbiters of a new movement of God that is inherently on the edges or beyond what the Scriptures teach about the operation of the Holy Spirit, but most importantly, the individual responsibility of every believer as a child of God to walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord and to yield themselves entirely to the Spirit of God, not in this mystical, ecstatic way, but in a very genuine and intimate and personal way, where you say, God, you have all of me, every bit of me. Holy Spirit, cleanse my heart and mind from sin. Help me not to grieve you, knowing that I will receive an account from Jesus Christ of all the deeds that I've done in the body, and I don't want to do anything that's displeasing to you. So I yield myself completely to you, Lord Jesus, and ask that your Spirit would fill me and control me this day. That's what I'm talking about, that level of simple dedication and keeping a short account of sin with Jesus Christ. This is what is the arbitration of revival, not as a pragmatic measure, but as a real spiritual truth where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The revived Christian life is when you have a clean conduit between yourself and God where the Spirit can move as He wills, and you are bearing witness to His truth from the Scripture that you've brought into your heart and mind. Those are the tools that the Spirit of God uses to transform your life, to convict you of sin, to help you reach others for Him and His kingdom. You say, how do you know that? We've been given the word of reconciliation, the Bible says. And what is that? Well, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very difficult to be an instrument of the Spirit if you've not given him the tools inside of you to be able to work on you and allow you to be a better tool in his hand, to be transformed by his presence. Folks, you do not need to have some type of special arbiter to make this happen. The Holy Spirit is the arbiter. He's the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit of Christ living in you. He is your unique connection to Jesus Christ, your unique connection to God the Father. He brings you into perfect union and harmony with God and God's purposes and God's power if you let him. But do not seek him for his power alone. Seek him for his purity. Seek him for the presence, for the truth that he brings into your life. And I guarantee you, the things that you thought revival was going to bring you with a couple of weeks shot in the arm are not to be compared to this. Do not be deceived by the claims of others that they have the fix for you. We don't need another fix. We just simply need to be sold out to God in our personal lives and let him do the work through us. So that's the importance of understanding the Christ life. Now, this last part, and I'm going to wrap up with this because I know it's been a little bit of a long podcast already. We've covered some very important ground, but this is probably one of the most important, if not the most important points, because it's sort of the jumping off place for how all of this happened in the life of Tertullian. Now, Brian was able to unpack a little bit of that. But as I dug into it and dug into Tertullian's life, one of the things that we find is that Tertullian was enamored of this movement. And it may be because of the strong moral underpinnings, which are also present in a lot of Pentecostal movements, sort of the legalism that comes along with that. But Tertullian, prior to all of this, had written a number of different arguments we shall say, or apologies against existing heresies. And he also wrote to talk about his own understanding of Christian truth. One of the things that he wrote was concerning service in the military. So he had an opinion on this, and he wrote about it. He also wrote concerning the dress of women. He also wrote whether or not one should flee under persecution. He also wrote on marriage and remarriage. Now, I don't think it's any accident that these doctrines were prominent in Montanism. 
Now, I don't know if he was listening to Montanus before he became the leader of this movement or if Montanus was listening to him or if they just happened to come to some of the same conclusions separately. But these issues were important enough to Tertullian to write about them, and they also constituted the core of some of the teachings that Montanus brought about in addition to these misunderstandings of the Holy Spirit. And so I would actually argue that it was because of Tertullian's interests and alignment with the idea, for instance, not to flee persecution. This was taught clearly in Montanus' doctrine, the idea that you could not remarry, that you were only to marry once. This was taught clearly in Montanus' doctrine, the idea that you were not to be coerced into military service. This was taught clearly in Montanus' doctrine, high moral standards for how women ought to dress and the wearing of cosmetics. This was taught clearly in Montanus' doctrine. And so this was more than an appeal to just the stringent nature of this. But here's the lesson that I believe we must learn from this. In our modern age, we can look at something like the New Apostolic Reformation and we can point out, this is why people get upset when we start mentioning or criticizing, as they would say, or evaluating other movements is because, well, there are brothers and sisters in Christ and they very well may be. What I am saying is that we run a risk in being so willing to affirm those things upon which we agree in doctrinal systems that clearly contain significant error, that we open up ourselves and those who hear us to the same error. So here is Tertullian, who ultimately becomes one of the premier, if not the most famous disciple of Montanus, who prior to this was nothing other than the most celebrated Christian apologist of the second century. Where did that transition come? When there was significant agreement between these folks, Tertullian decided to focus on those things which were common to them. He then was open to the claims that they were making otherwise. There's a modern example of this, and I'm just going to say it, and I'm not trying to offend anyone, but Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, is a clear example of this, having converted at this point to Eastern Orthodoxy. He went into heresy. Sure, there's many common points, but there are also extremely insidious and false doctrines contained within that system, dealing specifically with the redemptive efficacy of Jesus Christ. How does such a thing happen? How does someone who is orthodox in their doctrine become heretical? By opening up the door to ecumenism, where we are so excited about the points of agreement that we neglect the differences. We're so focused on unity and solidarity that we forget doctrinal purity. And no one wants to be that person that stands there and says, thou shalt not, because that's just legalism. Well, I'll tell you this. Legalism is about what people demand of you in order to be saved. That is the actual definition of the term. It's not just someone who has a clear understanding of doctrine and demands that we follow Scripture's authority. It's okay for people to disagree, but if they're disagreeing about clear Scripture, you don't just relegate that to the non-essential. There's no part of the Bible that's not essential. There are parts of it that do not speak to salvation, but that is to say that if it doesn't speak of salvation, that we have the right to relegate it to something that's unimportant, just so that we can cooperate with people who are clearly teaching false doctrine in other areas? Folks, these things ought not so to be. And it is this very thing that created the vulnerability that brought Tertullian into a heretical movement. So while there is definitely a humble hermeneutic, while there is definitely a rule of Christian charity, and there's no room for a mean-spirited difference, we're to speak the truth in love. It means we must continue to speak the truth. If we see someone overtaken in a fault, we're to go to them and we're to tell them according to Scripture, how that might be corrected. Why? Because the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And if we get it wrong, because we're more willing to partner with people because we don't want the ostracization, we don't want the, the pushback from standing on Scripture, we'll soften our positions, we'll soften our edges. And by doing so, we dilute the very stewardship that we've been given, which was to keep the faith as it was once delivered to the saints. This is why we care about all of those other movements and the fact that this has not been the first time that this has happened, that the church early on did this. It states very clearly that once it was realized what Montanus was doing, that he was kicked out because of his false doctrine. And yet in modern day church, often there are people who are teaching things that are just as bad or worse than Montanus, and they're our best friends. This statement says, when it became obvious that the Montanist doctrine was an attack on Orthodox Christianity, nobody wants to view false doctrine as an attack on Orthodoxy anymore. 
the bishops of Asia Minor gathered in synods and finally excommunicated the Montanists. Therefore, they became a separate sect with its seat of government at Papusa. The reason why we consider these things, again, is so that we might learn lessons from what has been done in the past, learn from the past how much of a threat certain doctrines that we may be currently holding hands with now really are to the church, to the life of new believers, to the spiritual maturity of the saints, to the preservation of an appropriate interpretation of the Word of God. Do not allow such things to be relegated to non-essentials simply because they do not determine where a person goes when they die. They definitely determine the level of satisfaction that the Lord can derive from an individual's life. Because if you spend your entire life laboring under an illusion, thinking that you're serving God, at the end of that time period, you will have no rewards. You will not have matured in the faith. You will simply have become more religious. And for anyone to allow someone to be relegated to that kind of life because they're more concerned about unity within the so-called church than they are about the spiritual maturity of individual believers, that's when we really must take action to consider our own selves. Where are we at regarding what the witness of Scripture is on how to handle these types of issues? Because, folks, they're right in front of us. They're not just 2,000 years ago anymore. They're here and now. And so as you consider these things, and we go on to consider additional things that were condemned in the early church, we appreciate you listening, and we trust that it is both sobering but also edifying and encouraging to know that the Bible does give us all things according to life and godliness, and that we can know exactly how we must walk in the truth. When he says, this is the way, walk ye in it. So if there's any additional questions, always feel free to reach out to us at calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's Calvary. Dot college at calvaryabq.org. Once again, this has been Squawk, and until next time, thank you for listening.